I can say good morning to you all. Certainly glad to see you here this morning as we're able to worship God together. Enjoy a beautiful morning. The God has touched us, allowed us to see another day. For our visitors here, we're certainly thankful. We recognize there are many places that you could have been this morning, but you've chosen to worship with the saints and meet here at La Prada. And for that, we are appreciative. As we get into our message this morning, we're going to be continuing what we've been doing the past few weeks on our Sunday morning assemblies. We'll continue that today. We've been studying over various women in the Bible. In these character studies we've been doing, we have the opportunity to learn from the study of the lives of these women. The women that we studied so far have been Priscilla, Rahab, Abigail, and Mary. In the lives of these women, we may see similarities in our own. We may see where they are strong, and we may be encouraged. We may see instances where they are weak, and see where we need to be on guard. Through the study of Scripture, we have the opportunity to learn about the lives and learn from their example. As you see from the screen today, we'll be looking at Miriam. Got that right. We'll be uh, learning about Miriam and seeking to understand her life and learn from her example in Scripture. Now, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about Miriam specifically. In our reading, you will see how Miriam's life was so intertwined with her brother Moses that every time we read about her today, we will find her brother Moses close by. And we're going to do quite a bit of reading about him to get to the context of the passages where we try to understand Miriam. So yes, there is much the Bible doesn't say specifically about Miriam, but what it does say about her, we can begin to paint a picture. A picture and better understand who she was and benefit from her example in Scripture. There are three main passages of Scripture that discuss the life of Miriam. So during our time this morning, we're going to look at each of those three passages and we're going to seek to better understand them. We're going to look at all that it says about Miriam. And then as we conclude, we'll make some applications from our reading that I believe can help us today in our faithful service to God. So let us start out first by considering Miriam's lifespan and understanding what point in Bible history that she lived. She lived during the time that the children of Israel were living in Egypt, or more specifically, in in the land of Goshen. The Jews entered Egypt as a free people. But over time, they were all enslaved by the Egyptians. Miriam was born into slavery. But she lived to see the long-awaited day, the long-awaited day that she and her people were delivered from bondage. The rest of the years of her life were spent in the wilderness just outside of the promised land. So as we read about her life this morning, we will primarily be in the books of Exodus and Numbers. We will go through quite a bit of scriptures today, so I encourage you to pull out your copy of God's Word or look to the screen where I'll present the verses for our consideration. We are first introduced to Miriam in the book of Exodus. In chapter 1 of Exodus, she isn't called out by name, 
But from the context, we know and understand that it is Miriam. In the first chapter of Exodus, we can read about the numerical growth of the children of Israel. And we read about a new king or new pharaoh that rose to power over Egypt. The new pharaoh, he did not know the history, the history of Joseph and his family. The new pharaoh did not know the several years before his time that God enabled Joseph to give advice that would save all of Egypt during the seven years of great famine that occurred throughout the land. Joseph was ultimately elevated to number two in authority, meaning that he only answered to Pharaoh himself. His family was allowed to live in peace in Goshen. However, life under this new Pharaoh was different. The Pharaoh looked at the children of Israel with suspicion, and he saw them as a threat to the security of Egypt because the Jews, as he says, were more numerous, and they were mightier than the Egyptians. He was concerned that the Jews would align themselves with any nation that sought to go to war with Egypt. He reasoned the only way, the only way to nip this problem in the bud was to deal wisely with the Jews, to assign taskmasters to them, to afflict their lives with hard labor, ultimately enslaving the Jews. By doing this, we see the fulfillment of God's word spoken to Abraham many years before. In Genesis 15, when God said that Abraham's descendants, they would be afflicted and they would be in bondage in a strange land for 400 years, but ultimately God would deliver them. So to stunt the numerical growth of the Jews, this new Pharaoh, he ordered that all the Jewish baby boys born were to be put to death. His edict went out. However, the Hebrew midwives that assisted in childbirth, the Bible says that they feared God and they rejected the command of the Pharaoh. Despite the command of the Pharaoh, the Jews continued to increase in number. So later, this Pharaoh charged that all his people, he charged them all to see to it that the Jewish baby boys were drowned in the river. Drowned in the river Nile at childbirth. These were surely dark times for the Jews, for the promise or the threat of death existed there for all the Jewish baby boys. And so while all of this was going on in the backdrop, the Bible introduces us to the family of Miriam. In Exodus 2, the Bible says, And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Miriam's parents, Amram and Jochebed, were of the tribe of Levi. Moses was born into this family with his older siblings, Miriam and Aaron. Hebrews 11 and 23 tells us that Moses was a proper child. The Hebrew word for proper is beautiful, lovely. Acts 7 and 20 goes on to say that Moses was exceedingly fair or beautiful. The Bible says that Moses was a beautiful or good-looking child. He clearly stood out in some way. Amram and Jochebed saw that Moses was special, and the Bible says that they were not afraid of the Pharaoh's command. So they hid their son, hid their son for the first three months of his life. 
His parents hid him until they could hide him no longer. They did all they could to preserve the life of their son, and I'm sure they lived in fear each and every moment, each and every day wondering, is this the day we're going to be discovered? Surely the punishment that they would face would be harsh, most likely death. So when they could hide Moses no longer, his mother made a basket and lined it with tar and pitch so that it could float. She put Moses into it and put him into the river. Exodus 2, 4 and 6, as it says, And his sister stood afar off, to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So finally, we are introduced to Miriam. The Bible says that Miriam stood afar, hiding, waiting, and watching, watching the ark with her baby brother in it to see what would happen as he floated down the river. And at the same time, Pharaoh's daughter went to the same river at the same area to bathe. She saw this floating basket and sent her maid to retrieve it. And upon opening the basket, the Bible says she saw this beautiful baby boy and had compassion, had concern for him as she saw him crying. The Bible says that Miriam approached and she engaged with the Pharaoh's daughter. Miriam was able to assess the situation and see that Pharaoh's daughter intended to keep the Hebrew baby and not put him to death as her father had commanded. Pharaoh's daughter is not able to nurse this three-month-old baby. So Miriam offers to find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for her. Now, Pharaoh's daughter may seem foolish. Foolish in disobeying her father's command, but I think she deserves just a bit more credit. Surely she knew of her father's command to put the newborn babies to death. Yet she entertains this offer from Miriam. If anything, I think she stands as another example of God using the most unlikely sources to accomplish his will. So Miriam leaves to go find a Hebrew nurse and later returns to Pharaoh's daughter with her own mother. The Bible records in verse 9, And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. So arrangements arrangements were made for Moses' own mother, Jochebed, to nurse him and to continue to raise him for a period of time and be paid at the same time. We see God's hand in this whole situation. Of all the people in Egypt who would dare to defy the Pharaoh and preserve the life of one of the Hebrew baby boys, but his own daughter. Looking at this from Pharaoh's point of view, this was a serious matter. It was a matter of national security. He felt the Jews cannot be trusted, and he issued this command to all. But it was put on his daughter's heart to preserve Moses and raise him as her own. And God allowed Moses to be cared for in his early years by his own mother, and then later raised as an Egyptian by Pharaoh's daughter. 
We don't know exactly how long Moses was raised by his own parents, but the Bible does tell us in Hebrews 11 and 24 that when Moses came of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But instead, the Bible says he identified as a Jew. Yes, Moses was raised with his parents long enough to know who he really was. He spent time living as an Egyptian, learning all the wisdom of the Egyptians, but he knew in his heart that he was a Hebrew. On the day of his birth, Moses should have been drowned in the river, but his parents preserved his life. And I'm sure Miriam had an important part to play in keeping him hidden during those first three months of his life. Every time he cried, I could only imagine that she had a part in there helping to hush the baby boy. On that day by the river with the Pharaoh's daughter, the life of Moses was preserved. And one reason that all of this happened is the actions of his sister, Miriam. We look to Miriam at such a young age, handling this encounter with the Pharaoh's daughter with such wisdom and courage. Verse 8 of Exodus 2 refers to Miriam as a maid which means she was a young woman, a young virgin. So we can speculate that she may have been, perhaps at the oldest, a young teenager, but most likely even younger. How could someone with such a lowly position in Egyptian society, a slave, approach to Pharaoh's daughter like this? In this passage of scripture, I see Miriam and I marvel at her boldness, I marvel at her shrewdness, as she offered to help the Pharaoh's own daughter disobey the Pharaoh's command. She told her, let me go find a Hebrew for you to nurse this baby. And then she found her mom and said, come on, mom, Pharaoh's daughter has a job for you. I venture to say that this bold and courageous spirit was instilled in her by God, and it was nurtured by her parents for such a time as this. Once Moses was taken to live as an Egyptian, the Bible is silent about Miriam for about 80 years, 80 years of her life. The first 40 years is that time that Moses spent living there in Egypt. But the next 40 years is at the time that Moses spent hiding out in Midian after murdering the Egyptian and fleeing Egypt. The Jews knew that one day, one day they would be delivered from their bondage in Egypt. So in the meantime, Miriam labored quietly as a slave in Egypt those 80 years. I'm sure that she and all her people hoped and prayed for that day to come that God would deliver them. In due time, God called Moses to return to Egypt from Midian in order to confront Pharaoh and to deliver his people from bondage. And through a series of plagues that we can read about in Exodus, God inflicted such hardship and destruction on the Egyptians that Pharaoh essentially ran the Jews out of Egypt. But in Exodus 14, we can read where God hardened Pharaoh's heart one last time so that Pharaoh chased after the Jews with his army to the point that he thought that he had them trapped at the Red Sea. But through Moses... God parted the Red Sea, allowing the Jews to cross on dry ground. And after safely crossing to the other side, the Bible says in Exodus 14, and Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea. And the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. 
And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. And picking up at verse 30, it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. This was a great and miraculous victory for the Jews. All those years of slavery brought to an end. These newly freed slaves who most likely had no weapons at all, who had no time to form an army, they stood by and watched as God defeated the most powerful army in the land. The Bible says that they saw the dead bodies of the Egyptians washing up on the shore. God was their defender, and he delivered them. If they ever had a reason to lift up their voice and praise God, this was it. And that is exactly what we read in Exodus 15. As the Bible says, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song to the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing it to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. What we have read is the first few words of a song of worship, often referred to as the Song of Moses. Moses sings and he recounts God delivering his people from the Egyptians. Moses praises God for his great strength and power, and he rejoices for God's unfailing love. Now, this song stretches on to the 19th verse of this chapter, but we won't go through the rest of the song because the focus of this lesson is Miriam. It is at verse 20 that the Bible speaks again of Miriam. Picking up at verse 20, the Bible says, And Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Seeing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. This is the first time the word prophetess is used in scripture. A prophet or prophetess, of course, is one who speaks the words of God, the words that God gives him. Miriam the prophetess, the Bible says, took the tambourine in her hand and led all the women as they danced and they played the tambourines and they answered Moses in song saying the words that God put on her heart. This song is the people's response to God and what he has done for them. They didn't deserve God's goodness. If we can read, they were already complaining to Moses before they had even crossed the Red Sea. So their lack of faith in God was already evident. It had already been on display. Nevertheless, God delivered them in a mighty way. And they respond to this deliverance with praise. Moses led in singing, and Miriam was the leader among the women, leading them in singing and dancing and playing the tambourines, what a time of rejoicing this truly was. In this passage of scripture, we see Miriam, a prophetess and a leader of the women, leading them in song and dance in response to this great victory that God had given to them over their enemies. We have something to learn from their example, and we will talk more about that at the conclusion. One of the beauties of the Bible is that we are able to see the good 
and the bad of those that we read about. In Genesis 22, we see the best of a faithful Abraham as he journeyed to Mount Moriah with Isaac, ready to obey the words of God and offer up his son on the altar. But then we see Abraham twice in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 hide the fact that Sarah was his wife. In both instances, the Bible shows that Abraham lied and presented her as his sister because he believed the beauty of his wife would cost him his life. Yes, Scripture presents to us both the good and the bad. And because of that, we're able to learn from these examples in Scripture. As Romans 15 and 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. We can look to Scripture and learn from these examples. So far, what we've seen written about Miriam has painted a good picture, a positive picture, a courageous and shrewd and wise young girl that loved her brother and helped to save his life, a prophetess and leader among the women. But now we get to the last major portion of Scripture that is written about Miriam, and it isn't so positive. But there are things that we must learn from her. Learn from her example, and that is what we will strive to do in this study. So let us now turn our attention to Numbers chapter 12. The context of what we're about to read here is that the people have been delivered from Egypt. And God has led them in the wilderness to Sinai. And it is at Mount Sinai where God delivered the law. He delivered the law to the Jews. And they resided there at Mount Sinai for about a year. And so now God is leading them from Mount Sinai and they are heading towards the promised land. It is time to go take possession of the promised land. They are so close to entering and taking possession of the land, I'm sure that they can just taste and feel that they are almost home. If we fast forward just a little bit and look at Numbers 13, we would see where God commanded Moses to send spies into the promised land to go check out the land that God was giving to them. Of course, we understand that those spies came back with a negative report. They discouraged the assembly, and God sent us all of them to wander in the wilderness until all those that were 20 years of age and older had died. So this chapter we're about to read is sandwiched in between all that as they're heading towards Canaan, and this is in the second year after they had been delivered from bondage in Egypt. During this journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, we can read of multiple, multiple instances of the people complaining to Moses when they faced hardship. Before crossing the Red Sea, they complained to Moses when they saw Pharaoh chasing after them. They cried out to Moses saying, didn't we tell you to leave us alone? Why did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? We told you to leave us and let us stay in slavery, for it's better to live as slaves than to die in the wilderness. Later we can read what they murmured against Moses because of the bitter water. Later they complained to Moses about the food and how they longed for the variety of food that they enjoyed while they were slaves in Egypt. The complaining, the dissatisfaction, and the murmuring continued. Continually the assembly complained to Moses and God continually provided for their needs although judgment and punishment also came along with it. And so that is why this account that we're about to read in Numbers 12 is somewhat surprising. 
In this chapter, we find that Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, decide to complain to Moses also. So Moses is taking heat from all sides, from the people, and as we'll read here, from his own brother and sister. So let us now read the first few verses of Numbers chapter 12. Numbers 12. It says, And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So the Bible says that Miriam and her brother Aaron both spoke out against Moses because he married an Ethiopian woman. So it appears that she and Aaron have a problem with the wife that Moses has chosen. Twice it is mentioned in this verse that she was an Ethiopian woman. So what more do we know about this wife? We know from Scripture that during the first 40 years that Moses lived in Midian, he married Zipporah. Now, we don't know if this wife is the same as Zipporah or if she's a new wife. But since the Bible doesn't focus on that detail, neither will we. The Bible also doesn't say what the problem was that Miriam and Aaron had with Moses' wife, other than the fact that she was an Ethiopian. In Exodus 34, 11 and 12, God prohibited the Jews from entering into covenants or relationships with various people that he drove out of the land of Canaan. But of that list... Ethiopian is not found, so it appears that there's no sin or violation that Moses committed by marrying this woman. But as an Ethiopian, she was a Gentile. The strict and most devout Jews did not intermarry. We can look to the book of Ezra at the challenges that intermarriage brought about for those Jews. We can look to the life of Solomon and how his marriage to many strange women Hope to turn his heart from God. So perhaps Aaron and Miriam have foresight. They have foresight that Moses doesn't. Or maybe this is just an opportunity to attack Moses. As we will see as we continue reading, God knows their motives. God knows their intentions. And he will get to the heart of the matter. The Bible records that they ask, does God only speak through Moses? Or does he not speak to us also? They're essentially saying, you know, Moses isn't the only person around here that God speaks to. Moses doesn't have the monopoly on God. God speaks to Aaron and me also. So let's break down this complaint against Moses. We've already established from our reading that Miriam was a prophetess. So we know that God does speak through her. We know that God sent Aaron with Moses to be his mouthpiece before the Pharaoh. We also know that Aaron is the high priest of Israel. So technically, everything that Miriam has said is true. God does speak through all three of them. In the book of Micah, God speaks to the prophet and says, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So here God says that he sent before the people Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to lead them out of Egypt. All three of them were clearly leaders amongst the people. 
But that wasn't enough for Aaron and Miriam. It appears that the older sister and the older brother were not content with Moses being in the lead role all the time. Envy appears to be the real problem here. Envy is defined as strongly desiring or coveting something that belongs to someone else. It often leads to resentment or hatred or ill will towards that person. The dictionary goes on to say that envy is being painfully aware that another person possesses something that you don't have. So what we have here is envy of the leadership role of Moses. Envy of his authority. Envy of his relationship with God. They envy the role that God has given to Moses as they feel that they could do the same thing since God speaks to them also. Now, I'm sure that Moses could have argued or defended himself in this situation. But instead, the Bible simply notes in verse 3 that Moses was a very meek or humble man, more than all the men on the face of the earth. Now, I think it's interesting to see that even in all his meekness, Moses was still a target of false accusation. Moving on to verse 4, the Bible says, And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and to Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. Like the parent who hears the children fighting in the other room, God heard their complaints against Moses. And he called all three of them out to the tabernacle. And as they came to the tabernacle, God came down in the form of a cloudy pillar at the door of the tabernacle. And he told Aaron and Miriam to step forward. God proceeds to correct their misunderstanding of this whole situation. God said, if there's a prophet among the people, I make myself known unto him in a vision. I speak to him in dreams. But as for Moses, God says that I don't deal with him in that way. He is faithful in all my house. And I speak to him face to face. God said, I don't speak in sayings or riddles with him. But I speak plainly with Moses. And we see that evidence in the law that he given, the precision for building the tabernacle and all those things. God speaks plainly with Moses. And he says, he is able to gaze upon my likeness. But God then asked the question. So why were you not afraid to speak out against Moses? Why were you so comfortable making accusations against him? Why was it so easy for you to trash my servant, Moses? God confronts Aaron and Miriam, and he lets them know that it is not acceptable to treat Moses in this way. Moses didn't elevate himself to this. It is God that chose Moses to be the leader. You can read back in Exodus where Moses tried to deny it. He didn't want this role. But God used Moses. It is God that chose Moses to be the leader. God clears the name of Moses, and he lets them know that he is pleased with Moses because Moses has been faithful. And since Moses was clearly God's representative, they should have accepted his authority and have been afraid to speak against him. So picking up in verse 9, the Bible says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, 
and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle. <coughs> and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not this sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. So God speaks to this whole situation. And then he departs as his anger is kindled. But as God left, we learned that Miriam has been stricken with leprosy. But for some reason, God chose to only inflict Miriam with leprosy and not Aaron also. As I was studying this, I read through a number of the words of a number of commentators who weighed in on why. Why did God only do this to Miriam? Why didn't he hit uh, Aaron also? Some said that, oh, Miriam was the ringleader. We see her name mentioned here first. So that's why she was hit in this way. Sounds reasonable. Some say that God could not afflict Aaron because he was the high priest. I don't quite follow the logic, but could be the case. The point being, no one really knows why only Miriam was struck with leprosy because God did not explain himself, which is why I'll explain it in this way. In the Bible studies that we have on the first Mondays of the month with Sammy Walker, he says a statement when we run across the Bible question that no one really knows the answer to. I like what he says in those instances, so I'll slightly modify it here and use it. God is a righteous judge. God judges righteously. I don't know why only Miriam was stricken with leprosy, but I trust the righteous judgment of God, and we leave it at that. In this instance, we see Miriam's skin has gone from normal to a severe case of leprosy, evidenced by her skin being as white as snow, as the Bible describes it. Leprosy was no joke of a disease. It is a skin disease that covered the body, brought about swelling, crusty or scabby skin, and it even ate holes in the skin. Contracting the skin disease meant that you had to be separated or quarantined from everyone else to avoid spreading the disease. You had to live outside the camp, wear torn clothes, announce your presence everywhere you went so that no one else would be infected. God used leprosy in this case to punish Miriam, helping us to understand the seriousness of this sin. Now Aaron, as a high priest, by law, he had the responsibility to examine those with leprosy and to pronounce them clean or unclean. So I imagine that Aaron has seen a case or two of leprosy. And upon seeing his sister stricken in this manner, Aaron spoke to Moses, saying, don't hold this sin against us. Notice that Aaron takes some responsibility here. He said that we acted foolishly, and we have sinned. He said, don't let her be like a baby born dead whose flesh is, whose flesh is half consumed at birth. I find it most interesting that Aaron directs his words to Moses. Not to God, but to Moses. Moses didn't inflict Miriam. Moses never even opened his mouth to defend himself. But he turns to Moses for intercession. And so showing his love for his sister and his meekness in the situation, the Bible says that Moses interceded on her behalf as he cried out to God saying, Heal her now, O God. 
Picking up at verse 14, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that, let her be received in again. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. And afterward, the people removed from Hazaroth and pitched in the wilderness of Paran. So Moses pleaded to God to help heal his sister. But God said, if her father, her earthly father, had spit in her face, it would have reflected his shame for her. In the same way, Miriam has been struck with leprosy, and God says she must be put out of the camp for a period of time because of what she has done. Here we see the seriousness that God places on the sin that has occurred. But we also see the mercy of God. God healed her then and there from this terrible disease. But she will still be separated from the fellowship for seven days. However, after the seven days are completed, she will be received back into the assembly, fully restored. After this account in the wilderness, the Bible makes no mention of Miriam's actions until the 20th chapter of Numbers, where the Bible simply says that Miriam died and was buried at Kadesh. The time span from Numbers 12 to Numbers 20 is approximately 38 years. 38 years of wandering in the wilderness as Miriam died just before the Jews started to take possession of the Promised Land. So she was around 120 years old when she died. In this final, I've gotten off from my verse, sorry about that. In this final account about Miriam, we witness the result of envy in Miriam's heart as she spoke out against her brother Moses. She bore the shame of this sin as she was put out of the camp for seven days. But despite this great sin, at the end of seven days, she was restored and received back into the assembly. And so that sums up all that the Bible has to say about the life of Miriam. Not all Bible examples are positive. I wish this last one was. But these are the real lives of real people. And we have the opportunity to learn from them. Miriam's life is an example for us. And Miriam's life is a warning for us. There are a few things that stood out for me in, the, in our reading that I want to point out. I've chosen just a few. There's, there's obviously many things we could focus on, but just a few that I've identified. Things that I hope that can be helpful for you. In our study today on Miriam, she teaches us to praise God. During the Exodus, the children of Israel were at the Red Sea as Pharaoh and the Egyptian army approached to do them harm. But God stepped in and destroyed all of them right there before their eyes. The Bible even went on to say how the bodies of the dead Egyptians were washing up on the shore. They witnessed God's mighty hand and deliverance, and their first response was recorded in Exodus 15. And it was praise. The song of Moses, the song of Miriam, is recorded for us there. And we learn from them the proper response when God has given you the victory. Praise. If we look at our own lives, we can surely recount all that God has done for us and the victories that God has given us. The fact that each one of us woke up this morning to an unpromised day, gathered here in the assembly with the saints, able to edify and encourage one another, 
the fact that God provides for our every need, and food, clothing, and shelter, and so much more, we have a reason to praise and thank God. When we consider the grace of God and his love for us that he sent his son to die on the cross, the death of Jesus that has given us victory over sin and victory over death, all that God has done for us should drive us to praise him. Salvation from the eternal punishment of sin is available to us. Hope for eternal life in heaven is made possible because of what God has done for us. Our response should be in obedient faith, and we should be forever joyful, for there is no other way that any of this was possible without the sacrifice of his son. Without his death, forgiveness of our sins was not possible. On our very best day, trying our best to live sinless lives, doing all the righteous acts and works that we could, none of it would add up to enough to atone for our sins. It took the blood of the Lamb of God to do that. And that is why we're able to rejoice and our response should be rejoicing. We praise God now and we praise God always because of the victory that God has given us over sin and death. And that is what Miriam teaches us. She teaches us to praise God in response to the victories that he has given us and that all that he has done for us. In singing, we also see a spiritual maturity in Miriam. She not only sang herself, but she led, as the Bible says, all the hosts of women in singing and dancing and praise. At this point in her life, Miriam was over 80 years old. So she was likely one of the older women in the assembly. We know that she was a prophetess and a leader too, as we've read. So in her, we see the teaching of Paul when he wrote to Titus. In Titus 2, Paul wrote that the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior, as become with holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not that blasphemed. Paul says that the older women, older in years, older in experience, have a responsibility to be an example, and they have a responsibility to teach the younger women. When this principle is followed, it is a blessing to the church. The wisdom and experience of the older generation is passed on to the younger generation. The older generation has been down this road of life, and they have the life experience to pass on to the younger. As the older have the responsibility to teach the younger, the younger have the responsibility to listen to and heed the advice and gain wisdom. I specifically mentioned Miriam teaching the women, but this applies to older men and the younger men also. A few years ago, I was in a stretch at work that life was so busy and so hectic for me. I was put into a position that was the most stressful I had been in in my whole career. I found myself popping medicine every day because of headaches that I had. Early in the afternoon, I was working very long hours, going in early, getting off late, working weekends. Nothing extraordinary. I'm sure everyone else has faced something like that before. But on top of that, life outside of work, family activities, sports, extracurricular things kids were involved in, there just seemed to be so much going on, and it was taking its toll on me. I'm usually pretty good at hiding my stress and just muscling through. 
muscling through and getting things done. But I remember on one Wednesday evening, as we were here at the assembly, I opened up to one of the older gentlemen in the congregation. He saw me that evening and he asked a simple question. He just said, how are you doing? And I unloaded. Normally, he's, oh, I'm good, I'm good. But I unloaded. And I told him how busy life was. How I was just running here to there and it just seemed that life was so busy and hectic and I just needed things to slow down. And this man went on to share some advice with me that night that truly helped me. We talked for quite a while that night. So I'll summarize the main thing that I walked away with. He told me to do my best to enjoy the ride while I was on it. Because he said one day, life is going to slow down. One day I'm going to be past that busy stage. And that'll be it. The kids will be growing up, moving on, out of the house. Work is going to slow down. And I'll look and see how fast it all passed by. He said he knows how tough it can be on some days, but do your best because one day it'll be all over. That talk with him that night really helped me. That advice really gave me a perspective and it certainly changed the way I look at things. A man with experience, an older man with wisdom who had gone through, similar to what I had gone through, was able to share with me and encourage me, a younger man. His shared advice was a blessing to me. Eugene Fisher, I really appreciate that. Really appreciate what you did that night, and I'm ever thankful for it. So younger men, younger women, there's a host of experience and wisdom in this congregation that we can learn from, that we can benefit from. We have elders and we have respectable men that have exhibited godly characteristics to lead and serve. We have godly women that you're able to look to for advice, Take advantage of it. Older men, older women, there's a lot of life that you have lived, a lot of wisdom you have gained, and godly experience that you have attained that you can share with the younger in years and younger in experience. What a blessing it is when we all can do just that. Miriam's behavior is an example of maturity as she led the other women in praise by example. And lastly, we get to the topic of envy. In our study, we learn more about the sin of envy. I don't know if my slides are caught up. I hope so. We just read in Numbers 12 where Miriam and Aaron felt that they were on the same level, the same playing field with, with Moses, and they were envious of his relationship with God, envious of his authority over the people that God had given him. Their envy manifested itself in their behavior towards, towards Moses when they made accusations about his wife, and they questioned his authority. They felt they deserved or perhaps they had earned the right to be leaders just like Moses was. And I think it's easy for us to look at the sin of envy and think that it's harmless. We may even question, is anyone really hurt with envy's in my heart? No one knows about it. It's not like I'm turning green or, or, or sick with envy. But let's consider envy for just a moment. That envy, that desire for what someone else has that causes me to be ungrateful in my own life, it causes me to look at what God has given me and to not be thankful for it. It makes me look at what God has given me and make the determination that 
It's not good enough. I need more. I want what that other person has. And as that envy grows, that envy could drive me to resent or even be bitter towards that person because I don't think they deserve what they have. But I do. I deserve it. Envy drove Cain to murder his brother. Envy drove Joseph's brothers to plot against him and sell him into slavery. Envy drove King Saul to deal harshly with David and even attempt to take his life. Envy drove the Jewish leadership to have Jesus put to death. Left unchecked, envy can push us to places that we never would have expected. Instead of minimizing this sin, we need to consider how God looks at it, what the Bible says about it, and consider the seriousness of it. Proverbs 27 and 4 says, Wrath is cruel, and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? So saying wrath and anger are bad things to experience, but envy is so much worse. Romans 13 and 13 says, Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. 1 Peter 2 says, Wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and, and hypocrisies and envies in all evil speakings. Envy should not be a part of the, the life of a Christian. As the scripture says, we need to lay it aside or root it out of our lives. In Galatians 5 and 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident or manifest. And the Bible proceeds to enumerate a various or enumerate, enumerate various sins, and envy is in this list, included there with murder. Envy. Something that most people don't even see. Envy is included in this list of sin that can keep us out of heaven. So make no mistake about it. Envy is a sin. Proverbs 14 and 30 in the English Standard says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. If left unchecked, the Bible says that envy will affect you. In this proverb, it says that a tranquil or peaceful heart is life to the body. It leads to a healthy body. But envy makes the bones rot. It's like a cancer to the bones. Envy brings about decay. Envy is destructive and it is harmful to the Christian. Left unchecked, the envy of Miriam drove her to speak out against her brother Moses in a way that was not pleasing to God. In the book of Deuteronomy, Miriam's punishment for this sin is brought to the people's attention by Moses. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses is restating the law for the generation of people that were about to enter the promised land after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. These people were 20 years old or 19 years old and younger when the law was first given. They were young. So when this incident happened, they may not remember it. And so as Moses is telling the laws about leprosy, in Deuteronomy 24, he says, Remember what the Lord thy God did unto Miriam, by the way. After that, ye will come forth out of Egypt. The context of this passage is Moses teaching on leprosy and the need to obey the commands of the priests. So we know he's talking about what occurred in Numbers 12. Moses says, Remember my sister. Don't forget what happened to her. She was stricken with this terrible skin disease and was forced to live outside the camp for seven days. Miriam was a warning to that generation. Don't allow envy to take root in your life. Easy enough. How do we go about doing that? 
How do we stop envy in its tracks? How do we prevent it from growing in us? Well, obviously you need to recognize it first. Envy is a heart issue, something that defiles us. In Mark 7 and 20, Jesus said, that which cometh out of, out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of man proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Envy was not specifically mentioned, but we understand the application that the evil of envy comes from the inside. Inside our hearts. Inside us, it is unseen, but when it comes out, it is visible in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes. So after recognizing it as a sin, we need to go to God in prayer. We can't see the envy in our heart, but God can. And 1 John 1 and 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to confess this sin in our life and have the determination to make the changes to remove it. In 1 Corinthians 13, it's a chapter where Paul writes on the subject of love or charity. In verse 4, he says that charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. In this chapter that teaches about love, we come to understand that envy is directly opposed to love. Love is free or absent of envy. When we love, we want the best for others, and we rejoice when they rejoice. So when we find ourselves tempted to be envious, let us choose to love instead. Now let me use a trivial example here to illustrate this point of choosing to love instead of envy. Now I talked to Brad about this beforehand, so please understand this is just an example. This, this isn't real, so, so nobody come to me afterwards and say, man, we need to help you out with that envy in your heart. <laughs> Several of y'all were at Brad's house yesterday evening. I think I heard there were 43 people there in attendance, and I know that we had a good time. That's great. We're glad all y'all were able to make it. Now, I don't know if you were able to see it, but Brad's got a new patio, and it's a nice patio. It's nice. I mean, he had a nice patio before. Gone over there and hung out, had a good time with them. Yesterday, I mean, he's like doubled the size. He's got a fireplace out there, heaters out there, TV out there, outdoor kitchen, the works. But for someone like me that enjoys stuff like that, you know, I got, I got a patio. It ain't that nice. You know, it's regular concrete and busted up ceiling fans and all. But, you know, it, yeah, I'm pleased with it. I'm, I'm thankful. <laughs> but seeing all that, man, there's a temptation to be envious. I mean, look at his patio. Why can't I have something like that? I deserve it just as much as he does. Why is he prospering like this and I'm not? If I'm not careful, thoughts like this will drive me to be resentful, bitter, or worse. If left unchecked, I'll probably start acting out on those feelings. And who knows how bad things could get. But instead... As I said, we should choose to love instead of envy. Envy is absent from love. And so I should rejoice with Brad. I'm thankful for Brad. I'm thankful that God has blessed him with such a nice patio. I'm thankful that Brad and Katrina were willing to open their home yesterday. To have all of us there and share all of that with us yesterday. I'm thankful for the times that I've been invited over there 
to hang out and enjoy the fellowship on his patio. I enjoy those times. When I'm out there, I'm relaxed, I'm comfortable, I feel like I'm at home, I always have a good time when I'm there, and it's truly a blessing to me. So I thank God for him, and I pray that God blesses him more so that he can continue to be a blessing to others. <laughs> That's serious. <laughs> so anyway, so yes, that is a trivial example, but I hope you're able to look at that and understand how we can go about turning envy of someone to love. Lastly, learning to be content with what God has blessed you with is necessary. Instead of focusing on what you don't have and looking at what others do have, you should resolve to be thankful for what you have. When we grasp how bad envy can be and the destruction that it can bring to our own lives, it should drive us all the more to root it out of our lives. We are all susceptible to this emotion. So recognize it when it appears. Pray to God for help to be resistant to it. Choose the love instead of envy and exhibit thankfulness and gratitude for what God has given you. This brings to a close all that I have to, to say this morning. I have done all that I could do to leave no stone unturned as we sought to understand all the Bible has to say about the life of Miriam. I hope that the study has been profitable to you. As always, we will offer an invitation, giving you the opportunity to respond, whether you're seeking a prayer from the church for perhaps a need in your life or you desire to put on Christ today in baptism. We want to encourage you in that decision to come forward. You can indicate your decision to come forward by coming forward sitting on the front pew, and someone will meet you there as we stand and sing the selected song, the invitation song. The message is yours.